Christ crucified 700 years before it happened this morning, I want you to see five saving achievements. Five saving achievements of the servant that make us marvel, defines our hope, and fills our souls with worship. That's where we're going. Five saving achievements of the servant that make us marvel, that defines our hope, and fills our souls with worship. Three of these we've already seen. Let's review achievement number one, the supremacy after his death. The supremacy after his death. In other words, you know this if you've been here, the servant actually begins at the end, or the poem actually begins at the end. And by that, I mean the end of history. The poem begins in the future, at the end of the age, with the glory and the, and the supremacy and the exaltation of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. And you can see it in verse 13 of chapter 52. Yahweh says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and he will be lifted up and he will be very exalted. Do you see? He will complete his mission and be lofty and exalted and matchless and supreme. And chapters 42 and 49 are clear. His mission? Bring justice to the earth. Salvation to the nations, light to the world, redemption to the Jews who rule and reign the world from a throne in Jerusalem. That is the plan. That is coming in the future. The catch is, the trick is, the mystery is, he was going to have to suffer. The second saving achievement, we saw this before. Number two, the suffering endured in his death. The suffering endured in his death. Look at verses one through three. Isaiah, Isaiah marvels in verse 1 that nobody believes this. In verse 2, he, the servant, the Messiah, he grew up before him like a tender plant. And like a root on a parched ground, he had no form and no splendor that we would see him, no appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. And you can totally tell these are the humble beginnings of the servant. Verse 2 is clear, like a little tiny plant growing out of the ground, he would be obscure and unknown and seemingly insignificant at first. Not an ugly man, of course but also not the one that you would recruit for a major movie role, let alone be the savior of the human race. Not even just that, verse 3, he would be despised. And he'd be hated and shunned and canceled. A man of sorrows, unacquainted with grief. The people of his day would find him detestable. Bottom line, the servant would know what it is to suffer. But number three, what did we see? We saw this last week. Isaiah sets the record straight with the substitutionary work of the servant. The substitutionary work. Because you understand the suffering of the servant looked like one thing on the surface, but it was something else entirely. Because the suffering he endured, he endured for others in their place. Now go verses four through six. Surely, surely our griefs he bore, and our sorrows he carried. But we esteemed him punished, struck by God, and afflicted. In other words, Isaiah is saying, look, from our perspective, it really, really looked like he was being punished for his own sins. We all looked at this thrashed, 
mangled, mutilated man, and we just assumed that he was being punished by God. And guess what? That's exactly what was happening. He was being punished by God, just not being punished for his own sins. And that right there, it's incredible. And, and, and because look at verse 5, he, he, we got it all wrong, Isaiah said. We had it all wrong. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. And that right there, you understand, that's the Holy of Holies right there. Not the 30 by 30 by 30 room, but the priest who was also the lamb offering himself as an atonement for sin. That's how you got saved, if in fact you are saved. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was punished. He was wounded. We got the healing. We got the peace. We got the redemption. Even though, verse 6, we were wicked sheep who went astray, Yahweh struck him with the iniquity of us all. This was the plan. This was always the plan. Even before there were any sinners to save, the Father and Son conspired together to save sinners, which brings us now, now to the fourth saving achievement. Number four, the sacrificial nature of his death. The sacrificial nature of the servant's death. Because irony, irony, I love irony. In films and stories and plays and poems, and I especially love the irony in verses 7 through 9 of Isaiah chapter 53 because it is all irony. And irony, you know, is that when something happens, that the opposite should happen. Irony is when the plot contradicts what the audience expects to happen. When something happens, then the opposite should happen. Because here's the thing. If the servant is Yahweh made flesh, and he is, if the servant... Hebrews 7.26 is holy, innocent, and undefiled, and separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. If he is sinless, and he is all of those things, then naturally you would expect what? You would expect what? Red carpet? Royal treatment? A hero's welcome? A sigh of relief that the, the Messiah has finally come? you and I both know that is not what went down. Instead, the long-awaited Redeemer was met with injustice and treachery and cruelty and malice and murder, and yet even despite their best efforts to end him once and for all, the sovereignty of God. Three ironic events of the servant. Three ironic events of the servant's life. Number one, if you have your notes, you can see this in there. Number one is the irony of silence. The irony of silence, verse 7. He was hard-pressed, and he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep before the ones who shear it, he was silent, and he did not open his mouth. And there it is. You can see it once at the beginning, once at the end. The silence of the servant. I mean, despite what he would endure, he, he did not open his mouth, meaning despite the beatings and the violence and the treachery and the afflictions, not once did he open his mouth 
in anger? In protest? In revenge? Never, never once did he defend himself or demand his rights, although he could have done so. And when we get to the Gospels, that's exactly what we see. That's exactly what we see. Even as he stood accused, Jesus Christ was silent. Before the Sanhedrin, before the pathetic excuse of a high priest, before Herod the king, he almost never even ever uttered a word. And when he did, it was to declare his deity. And yet you have to understand, it was his mission that drove his silence. And what was his mission? Well, to be a sacrificial lamb, of course, verse 7. He was hard-pressed. He was afflicted. He did not open his mouth. Here it is. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before the ones who shear it, he was speechless. He was silent. It's interesting, that first verb there, hard-pressed. Do you see that? That first verb there, it has the idea of being pinned down, hemmed in, trapped from every side. It literally describes a situation in which you are surrounded and outnumbered and your life is in danger. And in the Gospels, that is exactly what we see, isn't it? Round one, before the Sanhedrin, 70 men who took turns beating and slapping his face. Round two, a Roman battalion trained soldiers surrounding him, brutally beating and assaulting him. Round three, on his way to the cross, surrounded by a bloodthirsty mob cheering for his execution. Isaiah could see all of that, all of that coming in the future, hard-pressed and afflicted, and yet he was silent. He was silent. Because he knew what had to be done. He knew where he had to go. He knew what he had to be, which was a lamb to the slaughter. Verse 7, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before those who shear it, he was silent. And even here, even here, you can see the irony, can't you? Lambs who go to the slaughter, apparently, are silent before they do. Sheep that go to the shearers are silent. The point is they have no idea what they are about to endure. But the irony is, the irony is the servant submissively and quietly with full knowledge from all eternity of everything he would do became the Lamb of God slain for the souls of men. 1 Peter 1.20 calls him the lamb foreknown before the foundation of the world. John 12.27, just before he was arrested, betrayed, and murdered, knowing what was coming, he said, now, now my soul has become troubled. What am I going to say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this reason, I came to this hour. He knew exactly what was coming. Which means he went to the place of execution. Not a helpless victim in the clutches of his enemies, but a victorious redeemer who died for his enemies. Which is the point of the sheep and the lamb language, isn't it? 
I mean, you understand, this, this, this language here is intentional. It's not just a useful analogy. It's to tell us that the hundreds of thousands of lambs slaughtered in the temple were a picture and a pointer and a preview of the one great final sacrifice to come who would offer his life as a ransom for men. And I know you know that. You, you wouldn't be here if you didn't know that. And yet the question is, the question is, do you ponder and savor every single day the riches of what his death accomplished? That's the question. We used to be slaves of sin, but now we're slaves of Christ, purchased and bought and redeemed. We used to have, you and I, infinitely long criminal record of sins, but now is permanently deleted and canceled, i.e. forgiven. The wrath of God used to be upon us in righteous fury and indignation. But Christ has borne all of it. no longer under the wrath of God, consiled to God. Can you believe this? He died for us. What? And my point is, these are the very kinds of realities, church, that daily need to fill our minds. Because I'll just tell you, there are so many issues in our lives, in my life, that would not otherwise be there if I just pondered and savored the riches of Christ and him crucified. We fight depression with this. We beat discouragement with this. We fight dirty thoughts in our minds with this. We combat bitter feelings with this. We reconcile relationships with this. We stave rocky marriages with this. We learn how to parent with patience with this. We become amazing and not selfish church members when we become ravished by the sin-bearing, wrath-canceling death of Jesus Christ in our life. Event number two. Event number two, the irony of ignorance. The irony of ignorance, and by that I mean, of course, the irony, the, the ignorance of the people who killed him. Look at verse 8. This is going to be different than your Bible says it. Sorry, not sorry. Because of oppression and away from justice, he was taken. But as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, for whom was the affliction? I know your version says it different than that, but the Hebrew is tough and the grammar is tricky and scholars debate, and yet I, I think I see what Isaiah means. You see, he begins there in verse 8. He begins at the beginning by saying what had to happen to get the servant killed. What had to happen. Because if you think about it, if you're going to get a sinless man arrested and executed, you're going to have to pull off some things to make that happen. Right? Every law is going to have to be broken. 
legal processes are going to have to be ignored. Official legal procedures are going to have to be violated. False witnesses are going to have to be bribed and paid off to lie. And guess what? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's exactly what we see. You see, that's what Isaiah means when he says, because of oppression and away from justice, he was taken. In other words, they oppressed him. They did away with justice. They ignored the law, God's law. That's that's why they held a bogus trial in the middle of the night. That's why they wrongly incarcerated him with, without proper charges, no probable cause, no legal charges. They, that's why they illegally detained him and savagely beat him. That's why they paid false witnesses to lie. That's why they deceived the Roman authorities. They lied to Pilate to expedite his execution. I mean, you understand the last hours of Christ before he died were a clown show an absolute mockery of justice. And oh, how clever they thought they were, weren't they? And to give the devil his due, it was a pretty clever plan. I mean, this was, this was diabolically ingenious. I mean, they literally thought of everything they could to get rid of Christ once and for all, and yet, and yet, with all their plotting and with all their planning and with all their scheming, it was one tiny little miscalculation. With all their plotting, with all their planning, with all their scheming, what that little miscalculation was that effectively undermined their entire plan was none other than the sovereignty of God itself. They had no idea that the very death that they desired was the design of God before the foundation of the world to save the souls of men. They had no idea that they were playing right into the sovereign hands of God. Look at Acts 4, 27 and 28, if you've got your notes. The early church understood this. They were, they were astonished by the sovereignty of God in the death of the Savior. And they prayed this at a prayer meeting. Get a load of this. Truly there were gathered together in this holy city, in this city, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Here's who was gathered against him. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Here it is to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Everything they did was predestined by They were not in control. God was in control. And he, he didn't even Christ himself. Remember what he said? John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. That's ironic. And the funny thing about this is that the people who watched this go down, the people who watched him arrested and led away and beaten and executed, they had no idea 
what was going on. Even that Isaiah predicts. Look at verse 8 again. Because of oppression away from justice, he was taken. Here it is. And as for his generation, who considered? Who considered? That he was cut off from the land of the living because of the transgression of my people for whom was the affliction. Who understood this? Who got this? Who understood that when he died, he was actually dying in the place of those who deserved to die? And it's a rhetorical question. Very few, hardly any. And, and, and notice that very carefully, don't miss this. This is the first actually explicit mention of the death of the servant. He would be cut off from the land of the living, murdered and killed. And yet no one understood. No one understood. And yet, ironic though that is, that isn't half as ironic as event number three. Event number three, the irony of innocence. The irony of innocence. And by that I mean, of course, the innocence of the servant. You, you know this, he was murdered. He was killed. He was butchered. Justice was absolutely perverted, even despite the fact that he was innocent. He was an innocent man, and not even just was he innocent, he was sinless. Look at verse 9. And they assigned his grave with the wicked. But he was with a rich man in his death. It should say, although, although he had done no wrong and no deceit was in his mouth. And there's the irony. He did nothing wrong. He didn't hurt anybody. It was the opposite of that. He told no lies. It was the opposite of that. Anyway, we know from the Gospels, it didn't make a bit of difference, did it? They killed him anyway. And yet I want you to notice something, what Isaiah reveals there in verse 9, because this is absolutely astonishing. Because you remember the progression of the, the events here. They already killed the servant in verse 8. They already killed him. Cut off from the land of the living. Which means what? They got to get rid of the body. They got to get rid of the body. And so look at their attempted plan in verse 9. And they assigned his grave with the wicked. Stop there. I know your version probably says his grave was assigned. But literally the Hebrew says, they assigned his grave. They assigned his grave. The they, meaning the people in verse 8. The people who killed him. The people who did not understand what was happening. The people for whose transgressions he died. They, they are the ones who assigned his grave. And, and notice what they did, or at least what they attempted to do. They assigned his grave. What does it say? With the wicked. What does that mean? Well, here's what's interesting is that their plan, and not even the Gospels reveal this, the Gospels don't even talk about this, but their plan after they killed him, get this, was to dump his corpse in a grave, a mass grave reserved for criminals. Like the criminals who were crucified with him. That was their plan. Just chuck his corpse in an anonymous, unmarked, tomb for criminals, stains on society whose memory they preferred to be blotted out. Those kinds of graves were a thing back then, and, and, and that's the kind of grave they wanted to put the servant in. Do you see that? The problem is, 
The problem is the father was in charge of the funeral arrangements of his son, not his murderers. Look at the irony in verse 9. Or should I say the prophecy? And they assigned his grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death. What does that even mean? A rich man meaning what? A rich man meaning who? A rich man meaning Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea. You see, church, verse 9 is an unmistakable prophecy of a disciple named Joseph of Arimathea, the fulfillment of which is found in Matthew 27. It's in your notes if you've got them. Here's what it says. After the death of Christ, when it was evening, a rich man from Arimathea by the name of Joseph, who himself also was discipled by Jesus, he approached Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded that it be given to him. And after taking the body, Joseph wrapped it in clean linen. Here it is. And he placed it in his own new tomb exactly as Isaiah predicted 700 years before. What is this but proof? Proof that God is real. Proof his word is true. Proof that Christ is the, the center of, of history and the center of the plan of redemption. You, what you hold in your hands, beloved, I just, I just pause to marvel on this. What we hold in our hands is not just some work of antiquity, but a portal to the very power and presence of God himself. He has spoken. And so this grave, this grave of the wicked is, is so ironic precisely because the servant was innocent. He was innocent. Look at the end of verse 9. They assigned his grave with the wicked. He was with a rich man in his death, although he had done no wrong and no deceit was in his mouth. It doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. He never hurt anybody. He did no wrong. He never deceived anybody. He never twisted the truth. He never manipulated the facts. He always told the truth. He always did the right thing. He was a sinless man. A sinless, divine man. The Bible's clear about this. 1 Peter 1, 22. He committed no sin and no deceit was in his mind. 1 John 3, 5. He appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Hebrews 7.26, he is holy and innocent and undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, and yet they killed him because he was the light. And men love darkness rather than the light. And they don't want their deeds to be exposed. And I just got to let you know, I got to remind you of this, that John 12, 36, and Ephesians 5, 8, in Christ you also are sons of light and children of light, which means that they are going to do to us what they did to him. Count on it. If they hated him, they're going to hate us. If they persecuted him, they're going to persecute us. So may God give us strength, church. 
May God give us strength to proclaim the gospel, to contend for the faith, to expose the darkness, to suffer shame for the name, no matter the cost. Because how could we not do that? How could we look at poor sinners in the eye and feel and say nothing? How could one former slave to sin trapped in darkness look at a current slave to sin trapped in darkness and not with pity and compassion proclaim to them that the light of the world has come? That brings us to the fifth saving achievement, number five. Number five, the souls purchased by his death. The souls purchased by his death. And here we go, church, exactly where we began. Isaiah fast forwards. He skips ahead to the future after the death, after the burial, even to Sunday morning, the very resurrection itself. Yes, the resurrection is in the text. And yet before we go there, notice what Isaiah does in verse 10, because it is shocking to say the least. I'm just going to be really honest with you that most people are not theologically or emotionally prepared for what Isaiah wants to show, and yet we must reckon with it because we know that he suffered. Right? We, we know that he suffered. He was beaten. He was mutilated. He was betrayed. He was murdered. He was executed. People did those things to him, right? And yet Isaiah conspires to blow our minds by showing us that at the end of the day, it was God who killed his own son. Verse 10. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Literally, he caused him to suffer. Whenever his soul is offered as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Do you see what Isaiah just said? It was Yahweh who crushed the serpent. And even more than that, it says Yahweh was pleased to crush him and cause him to suffer. This was Yahweh. He did this. This was his work. This was his doing. This was his will. This was his good pleasure to sacrifice his son. What does this mean? What could this possibly mean? And the very least it means is that behind the scenes, pulling the strings, guiding and governing every single moment, it was the father. It was the father who ordered the death of his son. And he was pleased to do so. It's almost unthinkable, isn't it? It's almost unthinkable because think about what Isaiah is saying. The righteous one crushed the righteous one for the unrighteous one. The holy one punished the holy one for the unholy ones. The father killed his own sinless son in the place of sinners who deserved to be killed. I mean, consider what was happening at the cross. Just, just think about this moment. God the Father and the murderers of Jesus both wanted the same thing. And they both got what they wanted. 
but for totally opposite reasons. They, out of hate, wanted to eliminate the Son. He, out of love, wanted to exalt his Son. They wanted blood as an act of revenge. He wanted blood as an act of redemption. Or to put it in words of Isaiah or Genesis 50, they meant evil against the Son. The Father meant it for good. The Bible is clear about this. The death of the Son was God's idea. This was God's idea. Acts 2, 23. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4.28, they all did whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. This was the plan. This was always the plan, even before the world began. When nothing existed except God chose some from every nation and gave them to his son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. And you see, that is why the Father was pleased, beloved, because it fulfilled the plan of redemption before the world was made. And shocking though it sounds to say that God killed his own son, it is the greatest demonstration of his love in history, is it not? God so loved the world that he Gave his only son, same thing. He did not spare his only son, but delivered him over for us all, same thing. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to bear our wrath, same exact thing. If you have any doubt, any doubts at all about the father's love for you, the greatest evidence lies in the sacrifice of the son whom he sent to bear our guilt. Speaking of our guilt, look at the next phrase. Yahweh was pleased to crush him, cause him to suffer. And there's various ways to, there's debates about how to tra translate this, whether it's when you offer his soul or his soul will be offered. There's debate about this. I'm going with this one. Whenever his soul is offered or his life is offered as a guilt, offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. That is monumental. Don't get caught up in the translation, you know, debate there. Notice the word guilt offering. Do you see that there? Guilt offering. Guilt offering. That is massive. I mean, I don't know how much more explicit you can be to say that all of those lambs and bulls and goats and offerings in the Old Testament were but pictures to the final guilt offering to come who on himself would bear the guilt of men. That's what this is. I mean, this is Leviticus 5 and 6 and 7 and 14 and 19, a guilt offering who takes away the guilt of men. And yet a man? A man could take away the guilt of men? That's shocking. That's new. That is cutting edge. Nobody saw this coming. And yet it's not impossible, is it? That's shocking, but it's not impossible. I mean, if, if a man could bring sin into the world, then maybe, just maybe, a man could take sin out of the world. That's not impossible. 
what is impossible is coming back from the dead. That's impossible. Scientifically, biologically, physiologically, that is impossible. That does not happen. And yet that is exactly what Isaiah indicates is going to him. Verse 10 again. Whenever his soul, whenever his life is offered as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Did you see it? Did you see it? If you blinked, he said it so fast, you almost missed it. Isaiah just said that when the Messiah would offer his life as an offering for guilt, two things were going to happen. What does he say? One, he would see his offspring, and two, he would prolong his days. What does that even mean? What does it mean? Because think about it. When you offer yourself as a guilt offering, you die. You are slaughtered, right? And verse 9, it just said that the Messiah would be with a rich man in his death. His grave would be assigned with the wicked men. Verse 8, he would be cut off from the land of the living. Do you see that? Verse 7, led like a lamb to the slaughter. My point is, how many different ways does Isaiah have to explain that he would be dead? And yet here in verse 10, he lives. Do you see it? He lives. All of a sudden in verse 10, he lives again to see what his death accomplished. Look at the text. He would see his offspring, which means he would live again to see the souls saved by his sacrifice. Offspring means children. It means descendants. It means family. He would, Hebrews 2.10, bring many sons to glory. He would save the elect and live again to see them. And notice that word prolong there, literally lengthen his days. That is, I'm not even kidding you, an expression of eternality. It's an expression of eternality. They, they should have translated it a little differently, more consistently like the way they translated almost the exact same phrase in Psalm 23 when it said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Same language. It's an expression of eternality. And what I'm saying is what we have here in the text is not only the, the guilt-bearing death of the servant, but the very grave-defying resurrection itself. And not even just that, but even the glorious reign of the sun coming in the future, which is precisely what Isaiah means at the end of the verse, when it says that the pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand, that very simply means everything that pleases Yahweh will be accomplished by the servant. That's what it means. It was very good in the beginning. It will be very good in the end. With his power, the sun will bring the whole planet back to its pristine, pre-fall, paradise-like conditions, and the Father will say it is very good. So, now we're back to where we started in 52, verse 13. The glory and the exaltation of the servant, and, and, and just, just, just take a deep breath here for a second and think about this. This changes everything. And by this, I mean the resurrection of the Messiah it changes everything, doesn't it? 
I've said it before, and I'm glad to repeat it. The resurrection of Christ reminds us that how we die and when we die is irrelevant. It is irrelevant. It's meaningless. How we die and when we die, it doesn't matter. Why? Because in Christ, death is not the final word, is it? It's not. The most dreadful fear of our lives is over. The most unfixable problem of our lives is over. Death has been conquered by the servant. And his resurrection is the guarantee of our own. He willingly crawled into the belly of death and blew it up from the inside. And those attached to him by faith will also share in his resurrection. You see? So let me just ask you point blank. With no incrimination or condemnation, just, just need to ask you, do you still fear death this morning? Do you still fear this? Do you still fear that which the Lord Jesus will crush beneath his feet? Do you still fear the great enemy who is marching to its own funeral even as we speak? Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I'll see you at that. You understand, church, a snake with no fangs poses no harm. A cat with no claws has nothing to scratch you with. And in Christ, death is defanged and declawed and poses no threat or danger to the soul. If you still have more room, there's more glory to see. We're almost done. Give me a few more minutes. Look at verses 11 and 12. Because of the distress of his soul, verse 11, he will see, he will be satisfied with his knowledge, and all that is, again, is the servant, after his resurrection, enjoying the fruits of his labors, enjoying what it is his death would accomplish, and what would his death accomplish? Verse 11, good news for guilty sinners. This is Yahweh speaking. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and there, and he will bear their iniquities. Do you see that? The righteous one will justify the many. Do you know what that is? Do you know what justification is? It's where he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Don't you see? If you are in Christ, the full, perfect flawless, holy, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ was transferred to your bankrupt spiritual bank account so the Father now sees you with the very righteousness of his Son. The guilt is gone. Wrath is gone. And, and you've seen them, I know you have. Signs on telephone poles. Advertising a reward for lost dogs. Ever see that? You see the sign on some ugly, mangy dog that if you saw on the street, you would swerve towards it. Wow, that really hits you hard. I'm sorry. 
back up, back up. All right, you've seen those signs, those signs, dogs on, on posters, some ugly mangy dog. And for some reason, the people want that dog back. There, is that a little better? And, and they're even willing to pay you money if you find them. In a way, in a sense, on the gates of heaven before time, there was a heavenly reward poster. And there on that poster with all the faces of all the elect from all the nations that the father had chosen. And the father sent his son to go find them. To go find them and rescue them. And the astonishing thing is, he even offered a reward for when he found them. But the reward for finding the mangy souls, us, was not money. Rather, it was the very people he purchased with his money. Look at verse 12. Therefore, Yahweh says, I will allot to him, I will allot to the servant, the many. And the vast ones he will divide as plunder because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, but he bore the sin of many, and this will be different than yours, and he will intercede for the transgressors. And again, I know your version is different than that. There's debate here. The grammar is debated. The theology is profound. I'll explain what the debate is, but you can see, in a sense, that the servant is pictured as a king. You see that? And a king who wins a battle, who, who gains the plunder, and here is the debate. Either the servant divides the plunder with the people, or the people themselves are the plunder. And I believe on the basis of the grammar, it's option two. The ransomed souls are the reward. The, the people he purchased are the plunder. We are the reward of the king. We are the treasure of the king. How could this be? Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us, to make us his own special possession. And then the poem ends, the poem ends not with what the servant has done, but what he will do in the future. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, he will intercede for transgressors. That's really interesting. Your version might put that verb in a past tense, but it shouldn't. In the Hebrew, it's a future tense verb. It's, it's forward-looking. And all the verbs before that in verse 12 are past tense. He poured out his life. He was numbered. He bore the sins of many. But here, he will intercede. He will do something after he dies. And guess what? It is what he is doing at this very moment, interceding at the right hand of the Father as our high priest and mediator. Romans 8. 34, Hebrews 7, 25, and 1 John 2, 2 is clear. The, father, the Son is at the Father's right hand, pleading our case, citing his death in our place as the evidence of our innocence. And when we sin, when we sin against the Holy One, the Son says, Father, I die for you. I, I paid for that. 
I bore the wrath for it. Every single time the father says, I know, son. I know. They are forgiven. They are cleansed. They are reconciled. And they. That's who the servant is. That's what the servant does. And that makes us marvel. It defines our hope. It fills our souls with worship. And, and I close with this. This text may or may not address any of the particular issues that are happening in your life right now. This is one of the most beautiful and practical texts in all the Bible. Why? Because here in this text is the theological infrastructure we need to handle anything happening in our lives. The sins we cannot kill. The fears we cannot conquer. The problems we cannot solve. The people we cannot save the joy that we can't ever seem to gain access to. All of it, all of it flows from the bloody cross of a crucified Savior. I finish with a call to action from Christ, from Matthew 11. He says, come to me. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Anyone need rest for their soul this morning? For my yoke is easy, and my burden is easy. Hallelujah. What a say. Oh, great servant, we love that title. We love the title of king, of course, equally so. But we love the title of servant because you serve your people. You come alongside your people. You help your people. You became man to reconcile us to the Father. You became man, fully man, but without sin.